Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. We are expecting to hear from Premier John Horgan around 12:45 today. We are going to bring that to you live. It's expected he will outline a bit more about phase 3 and what that means as BC continues with reopening. Also coming up on the program, many municipalities and cities talking about and in some cases passing new laws to allow drinking alcoholic drinking in some public places. Well, we are going to revisit the idea of putting calorie counts on alcoholic beverages and what exactly are the limits or at least the guidelines as far as what adults should be drinking or what is a safe amount to drink every day, every week, every month. We are going to take a look at that after the 1230 news today. First, though, yesterday, as you know, we heard from the provincial government in response to many, many concerns about insurance rates at strata councils, strata buildings, many of the larger condo towers skyrocketing, the insurance costs going through the roof. And we heard from our finance minister about what the government was hearing. In late 2019, we began to hear examples of significant shifts in the strata insurance market that went well beyond any kind of normal market corrections. Well, after we talked about this yesterday on the program, I was uh, receiving, I received an email from a strata chair in Richmond who had other concerns. So we thought, let's talk more about this. And Royden Lamb is that strata chair. She has been on a strata council in Richmond for about 25 years and joins me now to talk a bit more about that. My pleasure. Uh, you are somebody who's been the chair of Estrada in Richmond for more than two decades. So what's your response to what you're hearing from the provincial government when it comes to these huge leaps in insurance costs? Well, as they said, it's a start, but there is so much more that needs to be done because it's not just the price that these stratas have to pay for these uh, insurance policies. It's also the fact that the deductibles have gone up to astronomical amounts Uh, And so each townhouse or strata condo owner has to now acquire private insurance to cover the fact that these deductibles have escalated. So when it comes to uh, things like water damage, most of this was covered by homeowners insurance before in the deductible category. Now because the deductibles have gone from $25,000 a year to $75,000, pardon me, not a year, an event, Uh, you have to pay an additional $90 a year on your insurance. The big one is earthquake. The deductible for earthquake damage is now $250,000. And to purchase uh, private insurance to cover that escalated deductible, you're now adding $300 to your homeowner's insurance. So your insurance has gone up probably. Mine, for example, I insure for approximately $650 a year. To cover this extra deductible expenses, I'm now looking at over $1,000 a year for homeowner's insurance. This isn't being explored. And that's um, your, your personal insurance uh, on top of what the strata has got, the, the insurance for the building? That's correct. And, and the strata requires by law that every homeowner has insurance. So if they don't buy it, then they are, they are now totally on the hook for any damage uh, that is not covered by these escalated deductibles. So, and in the case of, say, a townhouse or a condominium, water damage is a very viable problem. It's not unusual for there to be uh, floods between units. Um, And so, consequently, uh, these, these deductibles aren't helping in any way, shape, or form. 
The other thing, too, is um, the government is now cracking down and, in, and forcing Stratus to adopt depreciation reports. So now you've got a situation where you get a depreciation report that tells you all the things that you have to look at as a strata council going forward for costs, expenses of not only maintaining, but ensuring safety within that strata. So now you've got stratas that have had to have special assessments to cover these escalating insurance costs, uh, some of them 100%, 200%. So they've had to put forward a special assessment to cover those just for this year. Now you've got a deductible, or pardon me, a depreciation report that requires additional expenses to maintain and upgrade and ensure safety, but there's no money left with the owners because they've already have to pay a special assessment to cover the insurance. So you're going to see strata, uh, the, the condition of strata start to deteriorate because the money just is not there to be able to cover this uh, depreciation expenses. What it's, a, it's, a multi, it's a multi-headed uh, snake here, you know, and they're just looking at the actual insurance costs when in actual fact there's so many other facets of this. Right, because we've been looking at the actual cost to stratas, and I, and I think you'd mentioned too that even the strata insurance where you're the chair, that has gone up. But what is it, 100% this year? And that alone is it going to be a huge cost for the owners. But that's before we even look at how much more people have to be spending in their own personal insurance. That's right. That's right. It's, a, it's, it's just a, it's not, we went up 100%, and my, uh, my townhouse policy, uh, look, when you look at it, potential going up to four, uh, an additional $400. Well, so. What would happen right. then if somebody, because there is, there was talk in the legislation yesterday, and uh, it, it's not that there's all that many details, but one of the lines in there was about to making sure that owners couldn't be sued if damage was caused through no fault of their own. But what if you're in a scenario where it is the fault of the owner, perhaps they've left a tap on and they've flooded three units below. If they don't have the insurance to cover the deductible for the building, what happens in a scenario like that? Well, this is it. This would this would involve a massive court case that would probably go on for years before you could figure out uh, how it was going to be dealt with correctly. It, it's you know before it would have been it would the, the the responsibility would have been addressed between the strata and the homeowners insurance. Now, unless the if these people haven't got that deductible uh, ex, bought the extra deductible, uh, they're going to be on the hook for for the whole thing, and that's where it gets all caught up in the in the court systems. And um, and in a, in a in a strata development that can happen. It's amazing how frequently these things. The little kid goes into the bathroom, turns the tap on. They all go out for dinner, and now we've got a flood. You know, it's it's um, it, it's the. They're not. They're looking at just the insurance, not the big picture, unfortunately. Well, and there are going to be places too. Whereas in your scenario, you already know what you're looking at as far as an increase in your personal insurance. But there are going to be scenarios where a building has renewed its insurance. They have these huge new deductibles. Those are in place. But if an owner, their renewal isn't up, say for another six months, there's going to be a lapse where hopefully nothing happens. But if something does, they might be unknowingly underinsured. Uh, that's that's exactly what happened in my case, and probably in several people in this unit, in this complex, because uh, our insurance came due uh, March 31st, and I might add, we never got a policy until 8 p.m. the day before it expired. We tried, we tried all over to get uh, a valid 
uh, insurance. And at one point they said, we may not even be able to insure you. So now you've got a situation where it's last minute. March 31st, we finally got a policy. Um, but uh, personal insurance, mine was not due for three months. So we had to go to, we went to each owner and told them uh, that this had happened and you would be wise to cover yourself. Whether they did that or not, I have no idea. Because there's nothing. We can't, yeah, you can't force we somebody. Can't force them. Right. No. What do you think needs to be done then? Again, kind of looking at what the government announced yesterday, we talked to the Condo Homeowners Association. They even said this isn't going to do anything to solve the problems that are happening right now or perhaps even for the next year. What would you like to see or what do you think needs to be done? Well, I think the insurance uh, business is issuing a one-size-fits-all kind of policy. I think they need to be broken down into townhouse policies, into condo policies, um, I think they have to go through and look at the individual history of the buildings. I don't think any of this is happening, whether they've had many claims. It's just a one-size-fits-all. Like We're paying on our policies uh, for coverage for master key coverage, $50,000 deductible. These are individual owners. This is, this is the sort of insurance that is sold to uh, condos, towers. We asked to have that removed. Nope, we can't do it. It all has to be. It's, it's a, a cookie-cutter policy. Um, but they also, I think, have to crack down on the fact that um, I know supply and demand are all fit together. But that being said, you also have to take into account the big picture here. Uh, you can't turn around and say um, your depreciation report now is essential. Um, that way it will bring down the price of, of strata insurance because everything will be up to date and current. It, they're not going to be able to cover it. These expenses are uncoverable in some strata complexes. All right. Well, Royden, I really appreciate you joining us or reaching out to us to talk about this because there are so many issues here and so many things that still haven't been resolved. Uh, I'm sure we'll keep talking about this again, but thank you so much for today for your time. I appreciate it so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Right now, though, we want to revisit something we've been talking a lot about during this pandemic and many municipalities and cities debating the idea of allowing public drinking, whether it's cordoning off park space to allow adults to have an adult beverage, bringing up plazas where public drinking is allowed at certain times. There has been a lot of talk of this. Uh, Yesterday, we were talking about it on the show. We now know Vancouver City Council is taking another look at it. But what about the risks of drinking and the knowledge that comes with knowing how much is okay and what we're actually putting into our bodies. Well, let's bring in Adam Shirk, a postdoctoral fellow with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, It does seem like we've been talking a lot about alcohol, whether it's alcohol sales and consumption uh, during this pandemic. Uh, I'm almost afraid to ask this first, but do we know, is there a guideline as far as what is a safe amount for consumption of uh, alcohol for adults? I'm glad you asked that question because we just did a study regarding this about Canada's national drinking guidelines. What we found now is that, well, Canadian national drinking guidelines right now are three, three per day for a man and two per day for a woman um, to a limit of 15 and 10 per week for those same genders. And those, the Canadian guidelines are quite high in international perspective. They're really the highest um, in the whole world. So we, we did a study that came out last week, actually, that was looking at um, what a more appropriate level might be. And our, the, the results of our study, we found um, in our conclusions that a more, a more safe level of drinking would be around one drink per day. 
for for men and women? Yes, for both for both genders. Um, no difference there. I mean, the word safe is a bit is a bit loaded. So, I think all of us who are drinkers, we probably know this: that the safest level of alcohol consumption is none. You know, it's so harmful to so many of our body systems, including the risk of cancer. It's just the way it makes you feel the next day. I think we know this in our hearts. Do we expect people to to not drink at all? No, we don't. So, so more um, a more a safe level of drinking, if you are going to drink, would be around one drink per day. All right, and we're talking about is it, when we're talking about one drink a day. Is there any difference then between, say, a glass of wine, a beer, or a spirit? Not really, no. So what we're after here is is the ethanol in the drink, the pure alcohol. And, you know, so a Canadian drink is the amount of the amount of pure alcohol in a bottle of beer, a bottle of beer at 5%. And that, that ethanol, no matter how we get it, it's going to have the same effect on the body. It's going to have the same cancer-causing properties. Um, so it doesn't really matter uh, which type of alcohol we're drinking um, to get that ethanol into our bodies. Um, if we're trying to, to be, and, and I guess it kind of feels like it's contradictory as well, but if we're trying to be as safe as possible or perhaps as healthy as possible, I know people are really drawn in some cases to those new kind of vodka sodas, and it seems like there are just a ton of them now. Uh, but one of their marketing uh, sets is they always put the, the calorie count, and, and they use that as a selling point, is that it's only 100 calories or it's only 110 calories. Uh, some beer has started doing that too. Do you think, and I know we've talked about this before should that be the standard that alcoholic beverages should have the calorie count on them absolutely i think i think virtually all canadians could agree on this i mean if we think about if we think about the food and beverages that we have um, in packages in canada almost all products have caloric information on them and that nutrition facts label the black and white label alcohol is really unique in that it's been exempted from these these things that virtually all other products have to do, excuse me, for some time. And so, yeah, I think it's very clear that that alcohol should not be exempt from the caloric information. Um, That's kind of a no-brainer. But then when it comes to um, to, to the, the health effects of alcohol, in particular the risk of developing cancer when we drink, but something that not a lot of Canadians know, less than 50% of Canadians know that alcohol causes cancer. And so that type of health warning on our alcohol beverages could go a long way towards um, educating, excuse me, the drinking public um, about the hazards of drinking. Uh, do you think it is that high of the percentage of people that really don't know, or is it more of an ignorance is bliss type scenario? <laughs> yeah. I mean, fair enough. Uh, my, my kind of point is it's, it's the consumer's right to know. It's, it's our right to, to know that if we want to about the products that we're consuming. If we choose to ignore it, you know, all the power to you. Alcohol is a legal substance. You can, you really can drink as much of it as you want, as long as when you're within some certain bounds, like not driving and things like this. Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to, I was just going to put something forward for us um, and listeners to reflect on. So the the COVID response has been extraordinary. And I was just looking up, um, there's been about just coming up about 9,000 COVID deaths in Canada during the pandemic, since the pandemic began. This is not to take away from those deaths at all, and our response has been, I would say, measured and appropriate. But alcohol is responsible for twice that number of deaths, 18,000 in Canada, and that happens every single year. 
So we kind of reflect on what we've been willing to do in terms of the COVID pandemic and then what, what we're kind of unwilling as a society to do in terms of tackling our drinking. It is an interesting way of putting it, and you're right, not to take away from the COVID deaths, but uh, I know people have made the comparisons as well of smoking-related deaths and other deaths that are really considered preventable deaths. Yes, exactly, yeah. So um, alcohol is, is a behavioral risk factor for many diseases, and in particular, it's, it's one of the three leading risk fa- behavioral risk factors of, of developing cancer. So those are drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, and then excess body weight. So those are, those are the three main um, behavioral risk factors that are, that are in some ways modifiable for us that would decrease our risk of cancer if we avoided those. Do you think it might also, and not to, to focus only on the calories, but do you think if people actually then were able to, to tabulate how many of their daily calories were coming from alcohol, say if they had two really great full-bodied craft beer with their dinner, do you think it might make people double, double think it or, or at least be, acknowledge that, oh, wait a minute, 50% of my calories just came from the liquid that I had with my meal? Right, I absolutely do. So in that study that I was on before to talk about, we found that um, Canadians who drink, they take in more than 10% of all the recommended calories as alcoholic beverages every day, you know. out. The average drinker gets more than 10% of their calories from alcoholic beverages. And so caloric labeling and health warnings and national drinking guidelines, these are all kind of pieces of the puzzle towards educating us as drinkers um, about the harms uh, and the different consequences that we can have on drinking. All right, Adam, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, always good to talk to you about this. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Well, as you heard from the Premier and Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC, moving cautiously into phase three. Coming up this half hour, we are going to open up the phone lines and ask you how you feel about that. Have you already booked travel within the province? Have you already taken a trip? I know a lot of people have. What do you feel like going into the summer, being described as a unique summer, to stay the least? Coming up after the 1.30 news, we're also going to check in with the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Right now, though, let's take another look at the modeling numbers. They were released yesterday. Dr. Bonnie Henry walking us through the numbers. BC is at a threshold for a safe level of contact. And we heard yesterday that contacts had gone back to about 65% of normal. So what does that mean moving forward? We'll bring in now Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Kindrachuk, thank Thank you so much for being with us today. Great. Thank you for having me on. Uh, what, what's your take on the modeling in BC? Uh, the Premier just referred to BC as a leader in the country. What's your take on where we are right now? Yeah, I mean, I think when I look across, um, you know, the, the different areas or the different regions of Canada where we have, you know, significant population density, um, I think BC is, is definitely a leader. I, you know, I'm, I'm biased because I'm in Manitoba. Uh, and we really have not seen the, the brunt of the pandemic, um, but but there are a number of reasons behind that, which uh, you know, which obviously you don't face in in a place like British Columbia or, or Vancouver specifically, as as far as population density. So I, I think that you know um, BC really set the trend uh, early in the pandemic response for Canada, and continues to set the trend for for larger locales that that are uh, reducing social distancing measures and starting to open things back up. 
And when you look at the modeling numbers, we have to know that not everybody played by the rules or not everybody followed the recommendations that were made from the provincial health officer. So do we do we factor that in and that we know we are not going to get 100 percent compliance when dealing with this? Yeah, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I always say that I'm just a simple virologist and not an epidemiologist. So, you know, I, I, I can at least say that, you know, some of this is, is just my, uh, my intuition. But, yeah, I mean, you know, trying to get 100 percent, um, you know, kind of buy-in from, from the public really would, would not happen unless you had uh, lockdowns and even then had to ensure that, that everybody was, uh, you know, was remaining locked in. So I think, you know, the numbers where they are are actually, you know, pretty, pretty good. Um, you're going to have those stragglers that, that regardless of what you do and the messaging you provide, are just not going to believe that it's real. So if you can follow that up with testing, contact tracing, um, getting people to be vigilant or remaining vigilant as far as social distancing and, and proper hygiene, hopefully you can kind of create a bit of a buffer region around, around those folks. And when we look at numbers like this, do the numbers tell us more about the virus or do they tell us more about our response to the virus? It's really the, I think, the response to the virus. So, so far, when we look across all the information that, uh, that's been provided with, uh, with SARS coronavirus 2, which causes COVID-19, we haven't seen anything that suggests that there are strong changes um, in, in the virus. So we're not seeing things that, that would suggest decreased transmission or, or decreased virulence, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that some people have spoken a little bit about. Um, so, it, you know, I think right now the virus is remaining fairly stable. It's just the fact that at the very least in, in Canada and, and, and BC, where, where you guys are, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that this is what happens when you have a public that actually does buy into uh, public health officials that are providing great messaging. And I suppose it also tells us, because some of the graphs we were looking at as well was not only the infection rate, but also the death rate, and that Canada had done well there, or sorry, that BC had done well there as as well, not only compared with the rest of Canada, but with countries right around the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, in Canada, we we, we have this, you know, kind of a second here and a bit of a reprieve to, to kind of, you know, pat ourselves on the back a little bit about our response. But at the same time, I mean, listen, we, we have found some, some pretty significant vulnerabilities uh, in, uh, you know, in, in our society, in our population. And, and we need to look no further than long-term care facilities, in particular out east. So I think that um, you know, British Columbia has done very well, especially for a population-dense region. Um, but now we have to look, I think, across the board, across the country, and start to kind of address those vulnerabilities while also keeping in mind this, this virus is not gone. Um, so, uh, you know, I know that we hear lots of talk about, you know, we're out of the first wave, maybe we're seeing a second wave. No, when we look down south, I mean, we're seeing a resurgence in cases, uh, and we are not out of really the start of this yet. So what will happen in a few months, we don't know, but we can at least in some ways, um, you know, curtail what we may see by, by remaining vigilant. And, and how important is the number of uh, the, the transmission? If one person has the virus, uh, how many people they pass it along to? It's really important, right? So when we think about something, and when we talk about this R number, um, you know, we need to think no further than something like measles. So measles has an R naught of 14, which basically means one person can transmit to 14 other people on average. So it's, it's one of the most transmissible infectious diseases we know of. Um, this virus sits normally somewhere between three and five pretty comfortably, but we have seen cases where people can spread larger uh, or, or much more broadly. 
if we're now sitting at you know an R of one, that means that we've actually done a really good job. So now we're at a point where one infected person on average is passing it on to only one other person. And we can actually control um, that, that type of transmission, uh, again, through, through good uh, contact tracing uh, and good testing. So I think that's, you know, we're, we're where we want to be. Um, we're going to see, you know, a few blips in the radar as, as we open things up across the country. Those things always happen. Um, but again, we, we just need to reflect and look down south and say, that's what happens when we don't follow along with what we need to be doing and, and kind of use that somewhat as, as a lesson for, for how to kind of continue onwards. Uh, that number seems pretty impressive when we look at the fact that BC has dropped from that R rate of one to three to, to just one. Uh, is that because then do you think of, of wearing masks or physical distancing, actually following these guidelines in that to, you're probably, if you have it, you're going to pass it to somebody if you live with that person. But maybe by following those rules or those recommendations, you aren't going to pass it to people you come in contact with. Absolutely right. And, and even when we look at, you know, an, an R naught of, of one, so if we look at a transmission rate of one, even with closed contacts, if you still are maintaining some social distancing and, and maintaining, uh, you know, good hygiene, um, there, there is still, you know, a limited chance that you are going to, to pass it on there. It's not it's not a you know, 100% surety that you're going to pass it on to somebody that's, uh, you know, that's in your same household. So when we're at that rate, actually, we have quite a bit of control over where this virus is going. It's just that when we start to kind of get past that number and start getting into you know, up towards the three range, that, yeah, things get a little bit more difficult for us to manage, especially from game from a contact tracing side and trying to get people isolated before they continue to pass on the virus. And is it still, do you think, the the most likely chance, and not suggesting that people should let their guard down about touching things and not washing your hands, but it seems like it's much more likely we are going to get this from being close to somebody who has it rather than touching the rail on an escalator and then touching our face? Yeah, I think that there was, you know, we want to be overly cautious, right? So there was a, a lot of discussion about the, the potential for or for becoming infected by touching a, a, a contaminated surface. By far and away, um, what we know about transmission and transmissibility of these types of viruses, it, it's close contact, and, it, and it's primarily driven through respiratory droplets uh, when people are, are not that, that six-foot distance apart. So we, we want to be wary about surfaces, um, but we don't want to kind of do that at the behest of thinking about the fact, oh, by the way, I still need to be six feet apart from somebody. Um, you know, you can, you know, be hand sanitizing and, and not touching things. But if you're only two feet away from somebody that's infected uh, or somebody is only two feet away from you and you're infected, the likelihood is you're, you're still going to have a good chance of passing that virus on. All right. One final thing, contact tracing. And you mentioned that. How important will that be as we move forward and now as BC is moving into phase three? It's, it's amazingly important. Uh, you know, what we really are relying on with contact tracing is as soon as cases are identified, um, that we have the ability to go out and, and identify contacts of that person so that we might be able to actually get those people isolated before they're able to transmit the virus any further. And, and so, you know, for us right now, that is probably one of the most critical stages that, that we're in. All right. We will leave it there. Thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thank you for having me and take care.
Well, a lot of people have been waiting to see exactly what phase three means as far as traveling around BC and perhaps booking a trip to a part of the province you haven't seen before. But what exactly does it mean when it comes to tourism? We heard from the Premier in that news conference just a few moments ago that while some parts of BC are welcoming tourists and hoping people come back, others are still a bit hesitant and are asking people to hold off a little bit. Let's bring in Walt Judas. He is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC, joining us on the line now. Walt, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, What do you see Phase 3 meaning as far as people getting out there now and really planning and booking and finding ways to experience and explore the province? Well, it's a good sign, to be sure. It's a good first step to get travel and tourism moving again. We know there is great pent-up demand. People are wanting to travel, and now they they don't have any other choice but to explore their own province. So we are looking ahead and seeing bookings in July and August all over the province. So getting the formal go-ahead, I think, is a really strong signal to communities to be able to welcome visitors back, and that's... uh, as I say, a really good start for the industry this summer. Are there certain parts of the province that you think are more welcoming or hoping to kind of put themselves out there first as far as come visit here? Well, it's difficult to say. There's so many different places around the province, and some have been fairly receptive already. People in the Okanagan, by way of example, have been welcoming visitors from the likes of Alberta and elsewhere, even in the Kootenays. 65% of the visitors in the Kootenays are typically from Alberta. Many have second homes, and they've been traveling back and forth. But I think if you look at some of the smaller communities that don't have the same resources, some of the indigenous communities, they're a little more hesitant to be sure because they don't want to risk any kind of exposure to their local residents. So it will take a while, I think, for the entire province to really feel comfortable in welcoming people from other regions. But as I say, once uh, the formal go-ahead was given, I think you'll see the receptivity get that much stronger and better, and um, and you'll see uh, a more normalized travel pattern, if you will. Uh, at this point, though, there's nothing that actually stops people from Alberta going to the Kootenays or traveling uh, to the Kootenays if they wanted to. You're right, and there never really has been. There's this border that's inferred, but uh, there hasn't been anybody stopped and prevented from visiting the Kootenays, the Okanagan, or elsewhere. It's just we know and we've seen the incidents of the kind of reception that those with out-of-province license plates have received, and uh, that's purely based out of fear. And um, But now, of course, with uh, Phase 3, and the chance to open up travel throughout the province and from other parts of Canada, I would suggest that that will wane as well. People will be more receptive, knowing full well they can travel out of province as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been some concern about hotel rooms and with the uh, issue of still needing to physical distance and and not go to full capacity, that there might be a shortage of hotel rooms. Do you think that's going to be an issue? I think it depends on where that is. Again, um, you know, some of the more familiar spots uh, could be completely sold out. And uh, and there are other places around the province that would still be quite open. Um, More in the rural 
uh, parts of the province, to be sure. But nonetheless, there's always a risk that you're not going to find appropriate accommodation. Nonetheless, uh, there are so many places in the province that people can go. They might just choose to go elsewhere than their normal vacation spot. And I would imagine people are going to be looking for deals and there's going to be some balance there because on the one hand, people will be looking for deals for where they're going, but industry is just reopening. They are going to be reopening probably at reduced capacity and want to at least try and make some revenue. How do you see that playing out? It's exactly how you described it. I think it will be a bit of both and a lot of prices are dictated by supply and demand. So if the demand is high and the supply is low, naturally the prices are going to go up. But we've already seen many offerings, individual businesses, regions, different communities have put offers out to BC residents that when the time is right to travel, they've got places to stay and things to do at very reasonable prices. And so uh, those offers have been in place, as I say, for the last month or two. And uh, no doubt people will take advantage. Now, if you're deciding to book your vacation now, you may have a bit more trouble and be paying higher than had you booked a month ago. And are you seeing a difference then in in the types of vacations people are booking, whether it's the wine tasting in the Okanagan or it's more of a camping trip on Vancouver Island? Are you seeing any different trends in, in that sense? It's really too early to say. I think a lot of the resorts, and uh, the familiar places like the Fino were pretty much booked. But what we're trying to encourage people to do is, look, don't visit a community, stay necessarily with friends and family and confine yourself to those places. Do some of the things that international visitors would do when they're visiting British Columbia. Go whale watching, river rafting, go fishing with an angling guide, uh, take part in... in uh, Whatever festivities you can, go to restaurants, uh, make sure you stay at a hotel. That's all part of getting the visitor economy moving again. So that's really what we're encouraging people to do. Hopefully we'll see that uptake because uh, we desperately need it to make up for the lack of international visitation this year. And my guess is there's no way BC residents can fill that gap completely. Is there a goal then on how much or what percentage of that level of of international tourism that will be lost will be taken up locally? There isn't necessarily a goal per se. We do know that internationals outspend Canadians by a three to one margin. They are the high yield visitors. So Certainly the two months of the summer that are open to to Canadians or British Columbians traveling won't make up for the lack of international visitors. But as I said, we want people doing things beyond the free things that you can do in the province or in your home community. You know, sure, go hiking and go to the beach. But as I say, go to an attraction, a gallery, go whale watching, those types of activities that get people spending money within tourism operations and help get the visitor economy moving again. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for being available and for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Well, taking a look at nursing in this province, particularly nursing during the COVID-19 pandemic, and a new report shows that nurses are looking at a very high level of stress and high levels of mental injury as well as workplace violence. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Christine Sorensen, president of the BC Nurses Union. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Oh, happy to be here. Uh, This was a study that talked to thousands of nurses in BC. So what specifically was this study focused on? Uh, Well, we did this study last fall, even before the pandemic hit. Uh, And the study was focused on the mental health uh, and workplace violence. And what it did show was that nurses had high levels of mental injury and were experiencing workplace violence. And more so than we've seen in the past, or or were we seeing an an increase in that? Uh, Well, yes, we had done a previous study a few years before uh, with UBC that touched on some of these components, and we were seeing uh, an increase in that. Uh, This study is important because it was done before the pandemic, uh, and we do believe that uh, we will see following the pandemic uh, that nurses continue to have significant issues around mental injury, uh, and now that we are bringing patients back into our healthcare system, that workplace violence will occur again. Uh, because it must have been strange in the height of the pandemic, and and when we saw the hospitals, the the non uh, not the um, the elective surgeries cancelled, the thousands of surgeries cancelled, those areas cleared out to, to to be ready in case there was a huge increase of COVID nineteen patients. Now we're at this stage where there aren't that many people in hospital with COVID nineteen. The surgeries are being rescheduled. Was there was there a kind of a strange uh, time there in between while it was kind of waiting to see what would happen when we didn't know what was going to happen with the pandemic? Yeah, and that's certainly what nurses have told us, is that, you know, for for everyone else who got to stay home, nurses had to go to work. And they had to work under extremely stressful conditions, um, particularly, you know, psychologically stressful because there were so many unknowns. Um, And so, and and now as we're repatriating, bringing people back in and we're beginning surgeries, uh, we are seeing the same issues that nurses were experiencing last fall reappear. Uh, So they were already struggling with high rates of mental injury and workplace violence. We'd highlighted that numerous times. And now we're back into that same thick of it. And yes, our numbers on COVID are low, but that fear of uncertainty and what ifs, what might happen come the fall, continues to be there. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why we're going to conduct a second survey uh, to really understand a nurse's experience during COVID and the impact on their mental health and well-being. Uh, because this survey, like you said, that was done before the pandemic, uh, talked to nurses uh, be in acute care, in long-term care, in other settings. Um, my guess is there, there will be there will be a, a much different response from nurses working working in long-term care, say compared to somebody working in acute care. Well, that that was the best part about this survey is that we actually uh, had members from all areas, so nurses that worked in acute care, long-term care, and community care responded to the survey and provided their uh, feedback in regards to uh, the mental uh, injury that they were experiencing or sort of the stress and signs of burnout and anxiety that were um, happening that were really leading to mental injury and unfortunately uh, the risk of long-term impact. And it really highlighted the need that that we need to invest in mental health support for nurses who are dedicated to providing care Uh, And our second survey, we anticipate this is going to be even more evident that nurses who struggled through the pandemic with providing care with all of the unknowns and now are having a very stressful, you know, system where we're trying to get through as many surgeries as we can, uh, as well as understand that COVID is still out there. Uh, we we do need to invest in our caregivers. We need to invest in our nurses. They're really um, showing signs of mental injury. And what would that look like? Or, or when we talk about investing in nurses, where investing where? What would what would help uh, to alleviate this? 
Well, if we looked at preventative strategies, we do need to uh, look at why nurses are experiencing uh, mental injury. What, what's causing the high levels of anxiety? What's causing the depression? Uh, what are the workplace factors that are leading to a number of these things? And it can relate to uh, appropriate staffing. And we've seen that in our long-term care facilities where these nurses are very distressed about uh, their ability to provide good quality care because of staffing issues. Uh, uh, again, there um, there are a number of issues related to um, uh, workplace violence, and so we need to make our our workplaces safe for nurses to work. Uh, we need to allow nurses to be able to speak up and say when it isn't safe and where they need changes and where they need improvements and they need to be listened to. Uh, and that's important for nurses. We aren't being listened to, uh, and changes aren't happening uh, in the ways that we feel that will better serve the nurses as well as the patients, and so we can provide the best quality care. But when nurses are injured, they need to be supported. So they need to have access to early intervention programs. Uh, and when they're off work for short-term or long-term disability, that they're getting the support that they need so that they can quickly return to work. The uh, most important part of the survey, I think, that I found was that over 95% of the nurses were proud of the work that they were doing. They are committed to their patients and they want to provide the best quality care, but we need to be able to take care of them too. Uh, which makes uh, complete sense. When we talk about physical violence, though, this is something that we've been talking about for years. So what is it that's stopping finding solutions to this? That's a very good question. And, and that's one that I ask every day. We've been raising issues around violence in healthcare for well over 20 years. Uh, and last fall, we delivered over 25,000 signatures from people within BC who are asking this provincial government to please focus on providing safe work sites for nurses. Uh, we've identified 22 work sites in this province that are at high risk for violence to our members, nurses, and other healthcare workers. Uh, and we're still waiting for interventions to take place. Uh, we've asked for a simple solution, which is providing security officers, trained security, people who are trained in dealing with clients uh, who have mental health issues, who are aggressive in, the, in, in our healthcare system, so that they can support the nurses and allow the nurses to do the care that they need uh, as part of the healthcare team. Uh, and I wonder, too, why we continue to wait. Have you had any response to, to that or to those requests? They've acknowledged our requests, and, and this request is not only just at the provincial level, but also a federal level, uh, where we have asked for changes to the Criminal Code of Canada, uh, recognizing that, um, you know, uh, um, aggression in, uh, in healthcare does lead to violence, and we do need to make changes to the Criminal Code. Uh, we also need to make changes at the provincial level uh, in, in the physical structures of our facilities and the staff that are available to protect our healthcare workers. Uh, and so I am continuing to wait for both federal and provincial governments to make those changes. All right. Uh, we will leave it there for today. Christine Sorensen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. appreciate your interest in this.